Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 440. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Rebecca Maisiera Kaufman, a seasoned CEO with broad leadership experience in sales and marketing, risk management, and international business operations. Rebecca, a bona fide polyglot, started up the RMK Group in 2020 to advise CEOs and startups in all phases of growth. She's also co-author with Lillian So of the new book, Fit CEO, Be the Leader of Your Life, Achieve Holistic Health in Your Busy Life at Work, Home and Play, published by Page Two. In this conversation with Rebecca, we discuss her fascinating journey and dive into her new book, looking in the importance of fitness in mind, body and heart, why and how to bring personal values into work, managing your energies, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodar.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Rebecca Maisiera Kaufman. How, what a pleasure to have you. You and I are connected by the wonderful Charlene Lee, um, a great author, and you're uh, just a first-time author. Congratulations. Loved your book, The Fit CEO. So uh, I want to start with asking you a question. You're talking about CEO. You've had so many positions in leadership. What do you say to the idea that there is a crisis in leadership today? Well, maybe there's always a crisis in leadership or leaders are always managing crises. I think throughout time, um, people will say that phrase because I've never in my time lived through a time that we didn't have a 100 year event happening just about every 10 years. So, you know, I think we have these phrases, but we'd have to feel it back and say, you know, is that a political phrase? Is that a related to something. For me, I'm a, I'm a total optimist. I'm very impressed by the upcoming leaders who care so much about the environment and the world. So I think we've got a lot of leaders coming in that are very mission-driven in addition to bottom-line driven. So I think there's some pretty optimistic side to everything. So mm. not quite sure what one would mean by that unless they're meaning a specific situation. Well, I think that's a great perspective to have because we tend to always say, well, you know, mine is the worst or my generation is this and that. And, and we pull back. We, we talk about divisiveness in today's, today's world as if it's the worst it's ever been. But that's hardly uh, the situation. I mean, if you look back to 1858 in the United States, uh, you want to talk about divisiveness? Uh, that led to a little war. And, and we have other versions of divisiveness that have happened in the past. So if you start sprinkling back and look at, you know, as you say, peeling back and looking at history, it allows us to put perspective on things. So you are, um, you, you are, like I, an ENTJ on Myers-Briggs, uh, and you also have a passion for languages. I wanted to ask you how on earth you came to study nine different languages. I know you speak many very well. <laughs> you know, Growing up in San Francisco, I'm fourth, gen fourth generation San Franciscan. We spoke English at home, but I 
I think I was always really, really interested in languages. I remember I went to a school, um, I, I think I was in maybe first grade, and the teacher said we were going to go to Spain. And so I went home, I said to my mom, I need a passport, and I packed a little suitcase, and we were going to go to Spain, and I showed up at school with my little suitcase, maybe it was second grade, I, I just don't remember. But I recall the teacher laying out kind of this map of Spain and we walked around and we took our suitcases and we got our passport. I guess we made it up stamped. And I went home that night so disappointed that we hadn't actually gone to Spain. I was just so loved the idea of travel. I, I don't actually know where it came from, but uh, anytime I could, I learned a new language. So uh, I learned Hebrew young, just part of growing up. Um, then I went to a Chinese bilingual school for fifth and no fourth and fifth grade. Uh, the school near my house was a school that had uh, Cantonese. And then I switched to a school. Um, it was called a school for fine young ladies. We wore blue skirts and white tops. It was very, very funny. And there the girls had been in school uh, since kindergarten learning French. And so when I went there, I had to catch up because I joined in sixth grade. So I had to learn French. So I studied French after school uh, every day that first year to really catch up. So then I, I think French became my best language. And I would ask different people to tutor me um, or go for walks with me. So I met um, a woman I remember from Switzerland who was willing to speak with me conversationally a few hours a week to help me catch up. I'm sure I paid her, but you know, or my parents did, but to help me accelerate my French. And then um, when I went to college, I had tested out of French by then. And so I studied Swedish and German in college. And German, because I thought it was, I, I, I started off as a physics major and I thought there was just a lot of sciences that German would help me with. And then Swedish, because I had worked in Finland one summer and there were no Finnish classes at my college, but they did have Swedish, which is the second national language of Finland. So I could keep going on. One has a reason, but I could tell you, take you through all nine. Well, I absolutely adore it. I, you know, I, I, um, I can get by in roughly eight languages as well. So I, I feel like it's a, um, a common a ground. And, and you studied semiotics. I, I studied uh, deconstructionism and trilingual literature at university just down the, the pike, um, the 95 from where you were. So um, again, another common thing. So I, I, I wanted to ask you, so you've co-written this book and what I liked about it was it was very clear, the voice that you had and the voice that uh, Lillian had. Uh, I, I did have a funny thought is you, you write, you, you have Masiera Kaufman. And so, you know, here talk about splitting different roles. You have the very short SO and then you, Masiera Kaufman, uh, you know, a full basket uh, of languages as well. Of course, Lillian being, uh, I believe, Korean-American also brings that sort of multiculturality to it too as well. But what was your experience of, of co-writing with someone who you'd known so well? And, and how did you get through? Because there are always going to be tricky, tangly situations. It's a great question. You know, Lillian and I met, um, gosh, over, I guess, nine years ago and worked together as I was a client of hers. And, you know, so we met twice a month and over that year of working together, really connected. And I asked her somewhere in that year, she'd write this book with me. I already had the title Fit CEO and outlined it. And she said, absolutely, love to. Um, I went on my merry way over time. She left that club that I, I'm a member of and she started her own business. And 
uh, about five years later, I called her one day and I said, just checking in. I am still going to write this book. Are you still interested? She said, absolutely. And we always were on Instagram and Facebook chatting just little bits here and there. And when COVID happened, I had already decided to leave corporate America and was starting my own business, RMK Group LLC, with one pillar of what I do going to be this writing and, and speaking. And, and called her up. I said, I'm ready now. Are you in? She said, I'm in. And so we did exactly what we say in our book, which is we set up a routine. We met and we still meet every Monday. Um, then we met either every Monday and Friday or one of those days and spent a few hours together with our outline, um, working through some of the ways to make the book even better. So I had over the years, outlined it, sent it to her. She put it feedback into it. And then I wrote my, as you know, it has two voices, my side of the chapter, uh, and then sent it to her and she would write her side and then we'd review it together. And so it was actually a really fun, pleasurable, easy process. And interestingly, we both agreed, let's make this fun and easy. And mm. it was, uh, there was no conflict. Amazing. Well, one of the lessons that I learned from the co-writing I did was very much that to, to be very specific about the roles of one another. And it was very clear that you guys obviously had very different backgrounds to it. And that makes it easier. The, the challenge sometimes is, well, you know, you start and second person feeds off of it. And if that's OK, and as long as egos are removed from that story, then it becomes a lot simpler. But it's, a, it's remarkable how it can be a little bit tricky with egos and, you know, my voice and who, which name is listed first and all these other little nitty gritty things. You can play the, you know, let's just go with, uh, you know, um, alphabetical order or there's the person who puts more work into it. And so it, it, it very quickly can go awry, but I'm glad you had a good experience with it. So, um you had this framework and uh, you, at least you, you, you break it down into these five different sections. And, uh, and one of them, is, well, at least say that I was, um, not one of them, but one of the things you talk about a lot is allowing for imperfection. And I love that idea. Um, my question then becomes is, where is the place for less discipline and naughtiness in your fit CEO? I think it's summed up, and I attribute this to a great, great quote by Lillian, which is everything in moderation, including moderation. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to be balanced and weigh out how you do the different things in your day, your week, your life, you have to give yourself days off that you just aren't perfect at any of it, you know, like a, a complete rest day or a complete play day or what you're calling a naughty day or whatever that means for you and give yourself permission. So I think one of the things we talked about early on in 2012, 2013, in that time period was we were watching people at our club and there were people that were absolute like club rats, you know, they were there morning, noon and night. And they didn't look better or seem healthier or happier. They, it was almost too intense. You know, the idea of you can be fit, but you don't have to be, it's not a chore. It should be fun. And so we wanted that in the book, you know, so we kind of got to observe a lot of things together. Uh, there were some things we watched that we were worried people would injure themselves, you know, so it's worth making sure you take the time to not 
overdo it. And I talk about that with walking uh, with my sister about in COVID, it became, we walked every day. And then at a certain point, it's like, wow, I have no rest. If I walk every day, an hour and a half with my sister, I started to feel it in my knees. And so listening to your body, listening to your intuition. So you kind of know when you're getting too structured or too perfect, right. yeah. say, I need release valve. And if you want a day that you eat ice cream and that's what you do, do it. There's no yeah. wrong. If yeah, you I, want cake lunch, have dessert first, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I suppose when you try to be disciplined about it and have that intentionality, it's, it's just allowing for that slack to give yourself slack, to have self-empathy, to circle back and, and have that time to listen to yourself and understand. Otherwise, like you say, you can cause injuries or you're actually pushing too, too hard on yourself. Right. I always used to tell people uh, when they'd say, are you a competitive person? I would always say yes with myself. I'm my hardest judge, not some boss or someone else, right? So it is about, I love your term about, you know, self-empathy or giving yourself slack because otherwise you can create so much stress. It's just in yourself, not externally put upon you. I think that's one of the greatest gifts is when you figure out, you give yourself permission. Yeah. And it takes a certain confidence at some level to know that that's okay. You, you just mentioned work-life balance, or at least this notion of balance. And I thought that was a really intriguing part of what you wrote about you. You wrote, balance means connecting with your primary intention, your center, your heart, and not forgetting what brings you joy. In other words, leading with your heart. It, it, oftentimes one uh, is told, and, and, and you're not working corporate America. So it's interesting to look back at the, the situation when you're working, as I did in big business, to what extent uh, this notion of work-life balance is a plausible story? And, and if you want to succeed, is it really possible to have balance? I was asked that question innumerable times. And my answer was always toss out the word balance and replace it with a whole life. I had a whole life, loved my life, would not redo any of my life, but no single day was in balance. So when I was a CEO or running a major division, there would be days where I might've worked extraordinary hours in a crisis or a, a typical financial close where we had reporting and deadlines that were critical. Um, so that day might be all work and very little play. However, if I looked at my whole life, I absolutely, most of the time, read my kids' stories before they went to bed, and most of the time spent my weekends all with family, and mo most days had dinners with my family. But there were many days that I would call pulsing days, where we had deadlines and plans, and um, then I gave myself permission to work that extra long hours. And, and you're always, well, you know you've worked in corporate America. It's 24-7 in some ways. You're always on. And so how do you create these boundaries is what I spent time on and both being disciplined about having the boundaries and also being honest about, okay, this boundary I have, I'm going to have to release this weekend or this month because we're in a crisis, right. but they can't last forever. Either way, the crises can't last forever. Huh. Well, can't the chain, yeah. The, the mode of change is, is certainly on us and, and whereas, let's say, corporate America 30, 40 years ago was busy, I think it's 
even more 24 seven, if that's possible, if you will. There's, there's, there's so much more connectivity and, and everydayness, the global world. So we're in a constant always on mode. And, and the thought I have is around the idea of resilience, being fit uh, spiritually, physically, obviously sounds like a way to be more resilient mentally. I'm wondering about how your message fits for your children, 20-year-olds, and people coming into the, the business world, because they, they need to find their mark. They don't know themselves yet, so they have to compensate. They have to establish themselves. How do you build resilience when you're just coming into it all? It's a great question. I do think resilience is the foundation of having that whole life, the energy to do all the different things you want to do at the right time. So I, I think a lot about timing, pacing, and sequencing. You can't do it all simultaneously and maybe not even all in a row. I've wanted to write a book forever. I did it now. I wanted to do it when I wasn't working in a corporate American job. And so with my young adult children, I'd say what they observe is I, I work hard, but then I have breaks or boundaries, which build in resilience. So I eat lunch. I try to step outside and see the sunshine. Um, I, I definitely am good about putting my own oxygen mask on first. And I, I speak about that a lot, which is I can't be resilient if I'm wiped out and not breathing and not eating and sleeping. But there is a mode, you know, I've watched my, both my young adult children start new jobs. It's pretty intense and everyone wants to please the new boss and work really hard. And so those are good instincts. Just balance them or um, manage them into taking care of yourself. And I think that's where there could even be addiction to work, but, you know, the workaholism of, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta keep doing it. And you have to, you have to take breaks from that. And that's where I think the book can really help um, buddying up with some friends to say, make plans, you know, make a plan at 630. So you have to leave the office, right? Mm -hmm. Don't, if you don't have a plan, either an exercise class or a dinner with a friend or the movies, then you could just work. And I think that's another boundary setting is make sure you have other things that give you joy and feed your energy. So friends feed my energy, a good book, a good movie, but you have to, you have to schedule it. Mm. You have to have that discipline. This notion of boundary, I think is interesting because as I've gotten older, I, I feel like I'm, I'm more aware of what I do and don't want or do and don't need, do and don't like. Whereas when you're young, I'm thinking of my daughter in particular right now, a new job, it's hard for her to know where those boundaries are. Even let's say physical, there's a sort of like in, in the work environment, what's acceptable and you don't know all the codes yet. And, and can, I, can I punch out now and do my sports earlier? Is that allowable? How do you figure out where the boundaries are when you're younger? I think each company has a culture and you can read the culture. I think by Zoom, it's very tough because Anyone can call you anytime, anywhere, or you can set the boundary anytime, right? So, I, you know, one of the things is read our, the culture. And when you're interviewing with a, a company, I think it's really important to look at the culture. And you can ask questions during an interview 
like? Do you have scheduled meetings after six o'clock at night or after five o'clock at night, whatever your end of day is for you? Or do you have meetings scheduled above uh, before 8 a.m. or before 7 a.m.? And if you're in multiple time zones, are you expected to be on a call at 4 a.m. if someone on the East Coast has a 7 a.m. call? I think these are all questions that um, you can ask while you're interviewing. And the other thing you can ask is, do people go to the office Well, in the office days? It's so interesting in Zoom time, right? Indeed. In the office, um, leave and work out at noon. You can ask these questions from peers. I think you can start to read the culture. I, I certainly remember when I was interviewing, when I came back to the United States for a role, I, I asked these kinds of questions. It was my first job in the U.S. And I remember the guy saying, oh, yeah, we have 4 a.m. meetings every Thursday. And I thought, huh. I just don't want to have to get up at 3 a.m. And so I didn't take that job. No kidding. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I have a, uh, a reflection. I studied women's studies at university. And one of the studies or researches that I was uh, fascinated by was um, about analysts on Wall Street. And so they were looking at the II investor institution, institutional investor uh, ratings, and they picked the, the, the when a uh, analyst would move from one bank to another, what would be the condition of success that they would keep their II rating when they moved from one bank to the next? And there was only one statistically viable reason for an analyst being successful at bank two after bank one. You know what that was? Hours. No, women. Hmm. There were less analysts women. Uh, however, the statistically, as a woman, more likely to have success in the number two bank. Why? For two reasons. One is that they would focus on the reasons why they're successful at work, which was the clients. They were focused on the customers, whereas the, the male analysts oftentimes were more interested in the internal politics and the culture of the company. That comes with pros and cons. But the second one is exactly what you just did, which is that the women analysts tended to ask the difficult questions before they were hired, because they were looking for uh, success. So they would, how am I going to gauge and make sure I'm successful before I go in? Whereas the men might, and I'd be one of them, would say, oh, well, I, I get the big office, you know, I get the big, I get the big car, the big salary, that's what counts. Whereas the women would ask, well, you know, do you have women, female toilets on my floor? Oh, well, we're about to. Aha, huh. interesting. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I thought that was a thing. So um, talking about fitness, you, you've traveled around the world so much and lived around and spoke so many languages. 
I was interested in, in your perspective on to what extent fitness is cultural and, and how would you see your book landing in different cultures where fitness is viewed differently than in the United States or North America anyway? Interesting. You know, it certainly exists in lots of cultures. I, like I said, I've lived in Hong Kong, I've lived in Finland, I've lived in France, I've lived in England. I'd say some cultures are more into fitness than others for sure. And some cultures walk a lot more. I recall when I lived in France, just walking to the metro for my apartment, just walking to my job probably was four miles. And we never thought about it. Whereas in the culture here, we drive and we drive mm. so much that we need to go to a gym. Mm. Whereas I don't, I don't think in all cultures you need to go to a gym because you end up walking so much and you can walk more. Um and add other kinds of fitness. So I, I definitely think there are some cultural things. I think there's a lot of weather things too. So when I lived in mm. Hong Kong, I mean, it was hot very and hot and humid. So, you know, walking around in my work clothes would not exactly be um, comfortable. I think we used to run from doorway to doorway to get some of the air conditioning that came out of the doors <laughs> while we were walking somewhere. So in Hong Kong, I think you have to kind of go somewhere cooler to do something or we'd swim on the weekend. So I definitely think it has geography and habit and culture. And so I think if a culture um, supports fitness, it's going to be easier to leave work and say, I have a class or I have an appointment. If you're in a place that doesn't, then you need to add it through walking. But I do think it has got more cultural support in some cultures rather than mm. others in Finland. Um, we walked with about three layers of clothing on in the winter and we'd go walking on frozen lakes. Mm. It was very interesting, very cold, but mm. very interesting. There was a lot of walking, like otherwise you're never outdoors and, you know, it would get super cold. It does speak, well, I lived in Montreal where uh, we had similarly rather freezing temperatures and, and the idea of wearing layers is, is how you deal with the cold you go into something with a little less cold and you take off one layer and so, you know that's, that's how you live and survive in those type of environments very different from the san francisco world so right. you you say um being honest with yourself allows you to be honest with others and i thought that was a really interesting thing though what i was wondering was the way you are in life outside of work should that also be compatible, congruent, consistent, the same as you at work? Love that question. I mean, yes and no. I think I'm always me wherever I am. But I think at work you wear different hats. So if I'm in a board meeting and I'm on the risk committee of a board, I'm wearing my risk management hat. So I may ask more questions about what could go wrong and how might we bulletproof that so that it, we're protecting the company. Either we do a dry run of that risk or we create more um, redundancy against that risk. If I'm out to dinner with a friend, I'm not gonna ask them every time they say something, what could go wrong? What's your bulletproof plan for that? I mean, who would ever wanna spend time with me? So right. I think that at your core, you're you right, which is inquisitive or uh, engaged or analytical or whatever your, your way you show up is. So I show up as me, which is 
enthusiastic at dinner and I'll be enthusiastic at a board meeting, but the hat I'm wearing will drive a different line of dialogue. So I, I, Rebecca, in, in pretty much everything you wrote, the way you are, there, I, I felt connections, uh, both from the Myers-Briggs, the languages, the uh, types of studying you did, and, and, and then the idea of being fit, it, it really fits into me, if you will. But, but I, when I tend to look at people, I start thinking about them, well, are they fit? And, and then I have a filter, let's call it a bias that says, well, if they aren't fit, at, at, at the very least, you can observe that, it, it, it can lead me down to think, hmm, not quite as fit as needs be. And if you're not fit in your personal life, which can include how you eat, how you sleep, how you work out, because that, I mean, sweating is about as personal as it gets, right? You know, the smelly sweat. And at work, we're putting on this other image, you know, wearing a, a proper dress or, you know, suit and, you know, whatever, theoretically anyway, you know, in the office days. And, and we're eating certain things, but so much of, of who we are really is founded and built in, in our personal lives. And, and I can't help but think that if I don't trust the way they are personally, I can't really trust them professionally. What do you think? Hmm. That's a big one. Well, I don't look at someone physically and decide trust related to if they're into fitness. I mean, some people aren't. Um, but I think people, I, you know, my relationship to trust is I will give it and only can someone lose it. So in other words, once I get to know them, if, if they keep behaving in a trustworthy way, they'll retain my trust. So at work, you know, I work with thousands of people. I don't walk around distrusting everyone until they prove themselves because that mm -hmm. we may not have time for that. Instead, right. I give trust and then that something can be lost if they lie or steal or cheat, right? But look, thank goodness most people don't. There are people who do and they've lost my trust. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the vast majority of people are going to show up and show up well and so then i've given them trust and they give trust back and it makes a really positive dynamic at work and so i don't always see all the people i've worked with in their personal life so i can't right. judge that yeah. but one of the i would say one of the bigger transitions i made in my career was early on starting off was like everyone's got to gain my trust and don't know them and then as i learned that that would just take too long i you know at that point i had two thousand employees i can't go get to know all 2000 of them and gain the, have them gain my trust. So instead I gave everyone the trust and then work got much easier. And then you have routines. So I would have inspection routines or um, ways to ensure that we were making, checking, reviewing, auditing, that things were going the way they're supposed to, especially in the field I worked in, which was money. So when you're in money, you're going to attract more of the non- non-good people, but mm. still, hopefully you can weed them out in your process. Mm. Well, I, I certainly didn't mean to equate uh, someone's physical aspect with, with trust. I was just sort of thinking about how, when we're talking about fit in, in C, yeah. fit CEO, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's physical. And so it's kind of a, an ensemble of things, but a lot yeah. of that is actually fed from our personal life. 
I mean, sure. fed yeah. as in food as well, but it, it, it comes from our personal space. And so I, I was tending to equate this notion uh, when you have CEO attached to it, well, they need to be good personally in order to be fit as a CEO. That's sort of my equation. And within that, if I'm to work for a fit CEO, trust is a, uh, a critical relationship piece where you can trust others and you allow them to do things and so on and so forth. But I was just, I, you know, looking at this notion of being fit, which has been something I have done all my life. When you want to assess somebody, you're bored, you're, you're looking at a new CEO is coming on, says they're trying to pitch to become CEO, and you're, you're deciding on whether or not they're in there. To what extent can the fit CEO principles be part of the questioning of that person's capability to be the CEO? Sure. I mean, I think when I would interview and I have replaced multiple CEOs over time when I when I was chairman of a board, for instance, um, I do ask questions around how do you manage stress when you're under pressure? What do you do? How do you release stress? And people will share. I go for a walk. I I meditate. You start. They'll share how they handle themselves. So you're really learning about self-management. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to be the CEO of a major corporation or the CEO of your life, then mm. self-management becomes a really important arena to the, the notions you're asking about. And you can get at that through great interview questions and, and people will share. I, I've learned people always share. And if they don't, then you wonder if they have that skill set to self-manage. So you're under a great stress, you have to make a big decision, M&A, whatever it is, you can take them through scenarios and say, how would you handle that? How would you handle the situation? How would you handle your the pressure? And I, I love the answers I've gotten over the years. People mm. will share great tools. Some would go, some people run. A lot of people I've learned tend to go exercise that I've interviewed, but not everyone. Some will say, I'll, I'll listen to a piece of music, something different. Oh, I love that question, though. You know, how do you handle stress? It's really a, an interesting question. You mentioned music. I was thinking um, when you wrote about, well, you make sure you're having fun doing the work, the workouts, sorry. And, and, and the principles, you know, if you enjoy walking, if, you're, if it, your knees are hurting, stop because you're not having fun. And that, that, that makes total sense. I was wondering if you had a, a sort of a philosophy with regard to running or walking with earbuds in your ear. Because um, I, and I think that there are two camps, the ones that, you know, got to be in touch with nature, the air, breathe, listen to yourself. I tend to be in the sort of hyper efficiency, maybe ridiculous mode of wanting to catch up on podcasts uh, or potentially listen to some dead shows because I'm, I, I like to listen to music. Uh, w w what school are you in? Well, I walk, I tend to walk <clears throat> with someone. So, oh, I see. you know, with a so I'm not, I don't put my earpods in, but my, my real joy exercise why is dance class, which is great music. Um, so I hear amazing music, which brings me joy. And I get to, um, it doesn't feel like a workout when you're doing dance. It's an amazing workout, but for me, it just feels like joy. Yeah, I did. I did a Pilates session with a friend the other day and boy, did I get a workout. I felt that for two days more. In, in, in uh, there are two other areas I wanted to talk, talk about. Uh, we we're just talking about working out um, energy. So 
I'm big on talking about energy and you say, I have learned that how I look and feel and the energy I project are critical as they role model the way for others, which kind of gets back into what we we're just talking about before. I was going to ask you, to what extent do you believe that it's a leader's role to energize others? interesting approach the way you ask that question do I think it is a leader's role it is how I approach leadership so for me I do look to myself when I've led teams to energize them and so for me the routines I set up town hall meetings uh, communication notes um, I spent a lot of energy on recognition sharing information transparently both putting kind of one foot of my view on the world, the real world and sharing that. And then at equal time to my vision of where we were going and that optimism. And I know that energizes the team. If I went and heard a, a leader speak and they just told me about current difficulties, I'd probably leave the meeting pretty worried, right? Like, wow, are we going to make it? So if the leader doesn't also share how we're managing through the challenge ahead or the um, the future and, and paint a picture of the future that I want to go towards, I don't think you would create very good energy in the company. So yes, I believe in that context, it is the CEO or the leader's job to, to create energy for the team. I don't mean they have to go and personally touch each person and turn on their battery, but they should be painting a compelling uh, future that one wants to participate in and sharing the reality of how we're going to get there, the reality may be tough work and hard and help people know, okay, this is going to be hard, but here's how we're going to do it. You know, that's probably your, your right combination, at least in my idea of keeping the team loyal because they know you're telling them the truth mm. and giving them energy to get to that next phase, whatever that is, one year out, two year out, three year out. And a lot of, a lot of companies spend time on mission and values because staying consistent to that will help you get there. So yes, I think that was a long way to answer. Yes, I think it is the leader's job to give the team energy. Well, I, I, I very much appreciate the way you frame that because one could quickly be thinking it's our role to uh, take care of everybody's energy. And I I've observed that a lot of people, especially uh, who are working only from remote, have been sapped and, and even as leaders lacking their own energies. And when on top of that, they're expected to energize everybody else, it, I think it's a, almost a dangerous proposition. So what was interesting for me was that you talk about role modeling, the way you lead yourself as a way for others to have that same sort of hygiene to then have their energies. But the way you frame this is that you say, well, I, I'm gonna think through how I'm gonna present things which can be energizing to them, but it's not your responsibility for everybody to you know, have their energies in place, you know, how they sleep every night. Yet at some level, you know, I, I, I would say that in work, we should be allowed to talk more about mental health, sleep, sports and 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 how you eat and and other things which are part of our energy and yet kind of are verboten it's almost like well who are you to tell me how to eat are you a 
you know, nutritionist. Well, Lillian, of course, is, <laughs> or more so, anyway. Uh, last zone of questions, uh, and I'll let you go, is, um, and it's a tricky one, and it's around politics and religion, which you mentioned. You say, well, generally, you, you used to say, don't bring politics and religion to work because that's just, you know, common, common knowledge. Yet you, you suggest that things have changed. You, you talk about the need to bring your values, your personal values to work, which obviously structure your ethics and your sense of responsibility. So I was wondering where, I mean, it feels like today, values and politics are porous at work. What's your opinion about that? And how would you counsel people in corporate America, in business, in the way that they bring their values and deal with political hot potatoes that seem to be many in the in the frying pan. Oh, such an easy question, mentor. My goodness, softball. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't have the time for the depth of that that question. But I, I guess I approach um, people come to work from all backgrounds, all religions, all political spectrum and beliefs and values. And so the way I tried to come to work was always very big tent. And meaning everyone's welcome in the tent. And of course there are norms in the tent, which is to be acting respectfully and to act professionally. And so there are norms and most of the companies I've worked for, we've even had dress codes. You know, you couldn't wear a, a gang t-shirt or a, you know, I don't know. There's all kinds of things you can't do so that you don't create a hostile work environment, right? And, but I find if you have those norms and they're all in typically in a code of conduct about what we expect at work in terms of ethics and professionalism and if there's an issue, how you raise it. I mean, given all that is, you know, you sign when you join a company. The way I approach it is it's very big tense. So when people would you know, want to chit chat about the politics in the world before a meeting, fine, everyone does that. Did you read the news? I would never cut that off. But when the meeting started, then we're about, you know, if the meeting was about making teacups. We were going to talk about teacup manufacturing. And if we had to talk about the fact that the, uh, the factory was in a, a place that we felt did not support or live the values we all signed on to, We'd have a discussion about that. Or do we need to move the factory? Now, you know, I never worked in a teacup factory. I'm using right. this as But of course, I get it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, sure. And so I think these are all things that you have to have dialogue about and explore. And in, interesting in financial services, we spend a ton of time on not just um, conflict of interest, but perception of conflict of interest, which is a really interesting concept. You know, we tried to have, of course, no conflict of interest. But then we also tried to have no perception of conflict of interest. So to get back to your, your question about politics at work, I think people should have the conversations they want to have in a, a hopefully light and informative manner. If it were to get hostile, angry, factional, I would ask them not to do that at work. And I, I, do, I have worked through a number of wars, actually, uh, with multiple cultures on my team and and learning, you know, there were things that did get raised to HR and we'd have to say, look, let's go back to the code of conduct. Are you being respectful? You know, are you showing up and doing your job professionally? You need to work together that way. 
and no one can wear XYZ colors for a while. So we aren't triggering something from other countries. So you have to keep your kind of your eye on the pulse of what's going on. Um, but it's always shifting, right? So you can't know what that, that will be that day, but I try to stay very big tent. That would be my philosophy. I like it. And you also talk about the pragmatism of re relating into political topics that are relative to the project. And, and, yeah. and obviously I, I tend to think that we are political by nature and, and most of our businesses are political by essence because you know there's regulations and th those are usually done in some kind of Congress where lawmakers are. And so you, you have to have a political beat and those who, who aren't able to do that, in my opinion, are, are missing out on the bits of who they are as individuals. And therefore you're not in transparency, you're sort of hiding your cards and, and that can only bring issues when you have decalage, gaps between who you are and who you present. So Rebecca, I, I, I just overstayed my welcome. I really appreciate having you on. It's been great uh, fun chatting. I, I, I had so many gnarly, interesting, hopefully interesting questions to address with you, talk with somebody who's been in such great positions. How can someone get your book now that it's out? Yay, they can go to many places, but they can start at uh, www.fitceobook.com and all the retailers are there. And I'll be sitting for all the uh, links in the show notes. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so much. A big hello to Lillian So, your co-author, and to all the team at Page 2, Trina and company. Thanks again for coming on the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Really appreciated the time. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die suburb A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man competitions innate A convinced man in the arms of a woman 
realize revenge is in struggle with deceit. Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man hearing these guns. Finds a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, bit to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.